My name is Jason Fleming. And my name is Julie Muir. And this is the More Than My Past podcast from, from the, the Forward, Forward Trust. Trust. On More Than My Past, our key aim is trying to tackle stigma around people who've committed crime or struggled with addiction, to convince them that they're capable of change, and to convince everyone else that compassion is better than condemnation. Today, we're going to delve deeper into exactly how stigma operates. Stigma can often be a barrier to recovery. Telling people they are worthless does not help them believe in change. And practical barriers, for example, to getting a job or securing accommodation can push people back into their previous lifestyles. Stigma can also threaten personal relationships and damage self-esteem. The guests we've interviewed for this series shared stories of the stigma they've experienced and the way they've overcome it. You'll hear those stories in this episode, along with a few of our own thoughts on the topic. If any of the issues we raise on More Than My Past are troubling you, Forward Trust can help. Get in touch via our Reach Out online chat service at forwardtrust.org.uk. But if you're in crisis and need to speak to someone now, ring up the Samaritans on 116123. So, Jason, obviously you coming into work at Brixton and the work that you do there, what kind of preconceptions did you have, do you think, before coming into that environment of people that might have committed crime or struggled struggled with addiction? It's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, I've been in and out of prisons for two decades probably. But, you know, when you see someone who's on the first visit, you know, like, you know, their first time in prison, all their intentions are the right thing. They're, they're thinking about a maligned group of people who have forgotten and they need help. And so they go in. But, you know, you see people on the wing for the first time and they're tripping the stairs and, you know, you can see they're jumpy. And I totally remember that because you you, you believe... <laughs> rightly to a, to a, to a degree that you're surrounded by quite dangerous people and that therefore there's a danger to you and the truth couldn't be further from that because the people who work in prisons whether they be you know young 20 year old women to 75 year old men will all tell you that it, very rarely do you feel any anxiety about your your own safety because you're in a very controlled environment and you know by the time you get sentenced by the time people are doing their their stretch they know that they need help and they know that they need to get out of where they are and they know the way to do that is to put their hand out. And and um, I think, in my experience, 90% of people in prison, if you put your hand out to help them, they'll grab it and they want the help. No one wants to do that. No one wants to be in there. The overwhelming feeling of being in prison is boredom and a waste of time. That's That's the absolutely overwhelming thing that I get from people who are serving sentences. So yeah, it, it, it's your preconceived ideas are that you're in danger. And uh, I truly believe you're not. So Jules, the one thing I will say is that people who you know have come out of Nick from the people who either haven't committed crimes or haven't been caught committing crimes, their overriding thoughts about people who is, is mistrust. So that mistrust permeates throughout society and through job applications, housing applications, et cetera, et cetera. And how, how have you dealt with that being an ex-offender yourself? How's, how's that affected you? And, and has that diluted over the years of your um, being out of being incarcerated or, or do you feel it's still there hanging over you? To be honest, I think there's still an element of stigma <laughs> I, f- I find in certain people a lot of the circles that I associate and mix with and speak at work-related are all very big supporters of addiction and rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. And 
So it's easier, but I do still face stigma and it is really difficult. Even on home insurance, mm. you still have to tick a box yeah. to say whether you committed a crime or not. Even though my criminality was 20 years ago, I still have to tick a box and it still defines me. So my mm -hmm. insurance premium will be more than... Heather next door, yeah. and Heather might have been committing crime her whole life, but never been caught. Yeah, yeah. But and on planes as well. There's a box on a plane, isn't there? There's a box on a plane. You have to, you know, I don't know if I can get into America. I've yeah, never been yeah. to America, but want to go. But there's this fear of um, being. Do you, do you say something or do you not say yeah, something? Yeah, being no. turfed off the plane. And like, even now, today in my job, it's like I said, 20 years ago, I was a teenager and um, I'm applying, reapplying for prison clearance. And there's still a certain amount of stigma attached to that around applying for it and knowing that I probably won't get it. Yeah even though I'm bringing in lived experience and all of that stuff. And I think addiction on top of offending is another piece of stigma. I think offending is one thing and rehabilitation, but when people know that you've got addiction as well, mm -hmm. it's like another layer of yeah, yeah. judgment from mm -hmm. people. And it is really hard. And I think there's a lot happening at the minute in the media and, 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 you know, actors and stars and singers coming forward saying about addiction, which I think is helping, but you will always have pockets of people. And most of it really is lack of understanding. It's lack yeah. of awareness. It's not knowing the reasons why or, or, you know, the stuff behind it. Speedo Mick is an inspirational fundraiser who has raised hundreds of thousands of pounds for mental health and suicide prevention work. He's also in recovery. You can hear more about his story and the rest of our guests in our previous episode called Introduction to Series 2. In our interview, Mick mentioned a typical negative characterisation of people with addiction issues from someone in the public eye. I mean, I heard somebody say it was, it was actually a Tory politician. You know what I mean? And um, <laughs> it was a Tory politician and he was on uh, Good Morning TV and stuff like that. And he said it's, it, it's uh, the, the morally bankrupt. That's what he was calling us addicts. We're all morally bankrupt, basically. Uh, that's not true. That's not true because when we get clean, we, we, we give as much as anybody, if not more, as addicts, you know what I mean? And, and that's, that, all that stuff, all that stigma itself. And that's from, you know, that's from somebody who's in power who hasn't got a clue, mm -hmm. not being educated around that stuff, you know what I mean? And they, they're, they're supposed to be the educated people, the edu you know, and then, and all they do is, you know, cast aspersions and, and, and leave you in the shadows, basically, yeah. by making silly comments like that. Liz Jones was once a heroin and crack addict but is now a criminology lecturer. She shared a really interesting summary of how people with addiction issues are represented in the media and how that affects public perception. The way it's represented in the news, the way, you know, you don't see if there's a heroic story of someone, you know, saving someone from a fate worse than death, it won't say ex-drug addict or it won't say in recovery. They hide anything like that in good stories. But if it's someone that's robbed an ambulance of drugs, that, or then... It's, it's clear for everyone to see and it's just, I mean, obviously labelling and, and societal reaction and everything is a huge part of criminology. I ask my first year students when we're talking about labelling theory, um, I, I give them scenarios like, you know, if you were in an employer, would you employ this person? And you can have the same person or the same 
background of, of different people, you know, so same qualifications, same criminal history, except one will be a, an extra addict and one won't be. And they always choose the one that wasn't the drug addict as to who they'd employ. And it's, again, it's like, why? And it's that once an addict, always an addict. But there was a report done, wasn't it, by the UK DPC about, well, about 10 years ago now, and it was about breaking the stigma. And I don't think anything's changed no. from that report, you know. And it's the public understandings. I mean, we, we talk about drug education all the time, but it's not about educating like, this is shit, that's going to do that to you. It's, it's the why the drug education that actually people that take drugs aren't bad. As well as the wider social impact, Liz explains how stigma has affected her own life. Me and my ex-husband, my first ex-husband, we wanted to buy a house, but obviously, you know, being a registered drug addict and having that, you know, when they do all the background checks and everything, it's it's a no-go. You're never going to get the insurance needed and, and stuff like that. Life insurance. Um, in, in the medical field, I've experienced a lot of stigmatisation. Years ago, I had to have minus day surgery for something and they couldn't find a vein so they put a cannula in my foot and as I'm hobbling to the toilet after the surgery I was going limping along out, 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 and this nurse just turned around and went oh, it's your own fucking fault isn't it and it didn't it didn't make me ashamed as stigma often does it just made me angry and it also determined I was like do you know what I don't need I don't need this attitude that's not me anymore I feel angry for you at the medical stigma. Like, how dare they? It's interesting, isn't it, that stigma about how you're perceived as an ex-offender or ex-addict? Because I truly believe that the majority of people don't have a, a very strong opinion about that. If something eventually comes out about you being having served time or having been an addict, I think that most people don't have a problem with it. What I think... The problem is, is society, you know, in a, on, a, on a kind of government level, banks, mortgages, uh, hospitals, uh, all those institutions are biased against people who have been through that process. You know, I know this from even, even the most simple thing, like the people who smoked as opposed to the people who didn't, you know, insurance, medical treatment, et cetera, et cetera. How, how, what do you feel about that, Jules? No, I agree. I think you're absolutely right. When when you know someone that's been through it, you, t- you tend to sort of see it differently. And, mm-hmm. and that is my experience when people know my story and then they go, oh, wow, wow, that's amazing. You've done great. Mm. But you're right. It is it is the impact on everything else. It's, it's work. It's renting. You know, even renting properties, yeah, sure. the market out there at the minute is a nightmare. You get like 150 people turn up to, to rent one property. You might come down to the last two people. And if you tick the box to say that you are, you've got offences that are unspent or, or whatever. I mean, they don't ask about addiction, but it's more around your offending. Then you're less likely to yeah. succeed in that. And it is... It is difficult and it's a constant pressure that you have to. And I think for me anyway... I've I have felt over the years that I've had to work extra hard, extra hard in line with someone else that hasn't had the same. And of course, it's all consequences of my own actions, my addiction and offending. But having to work extra hard to to reach the same level as someone else that hasn't necessarily had to put in all the extra work and actually proving myself time and time again Um that that is not me and I am more than my past. Yeah. In all of those things, they're looking for a reason to say no, always. And societies demand that that past be not forgotten and can't be left behind means it constantly gives people a reason to say, I've got to choose A or B, B's been in the nick, 
or B's got had a coke habit or whatever it is. Therefore, it's an easy decision for me to make to say no, you know, and that yeah. we've got to look at that about that having to declare that stuff 20 years later, you know. Yeah, you know, I don't have to declare that I wet the bed when I was 13. Do you know what I mean? That's sort of I've left that behind. <laughs> but it's like, come on, <laughs> give, give a man a break, you know. <laughs> exactly. Completely. Marie Claire O'Brien went to prison for a serious crime before setting up a life-changing social enterprise. She explained how difficult stigma can be to manage in her personal life. You are 15 years away from where you were mm. with all of this, you know, fantastic um, organisation that you set up, your life, your family. Are you still facing stigma today? Is there still <laughs> stigma around your offending and addiction? Yeah, there is. And I, I nearly put a tweet about it the other last week, actually, because I was going on a date on Friday. And um, we talk a lot about disclose. Obviously, I'm, I'm, we're employment focused. So we talk a lot about disclose, disclosing to employers. And I can remember my own disclosure journey was full of tears. From, you know, such, such an emotional thing to disclose the worst thing about yourself, let alone my crime, which, you know, was catastrophic for so many people. So there was like loads of emotion that goes with that and will always go with that. But then, so we talk about the employment disclosures, but we don't talk about like the personal disclosures and like, you know, going on dates or meeting somebody new, even, you know, making friends with a mom at the school gate and being around their child. There was this feeling of, God, I'm a, I'm a prisoner. I'm an ex-prisoner. And she might not want me to be around her child if she knows that I'm an ex-prisoner. And I should tell her that about me so that she can make that decision and obviously, if I'm dating somebody, at what point is the right point to tell them the worst thing about myself that I've ever, ever done in the world and will hopefully ever do again? Do I tell them on the first day I meet them so that they can then get out of it? Or do I tell them a week into it when we've potentially started to get feelings for each other? And it's, you know, I, nobody helps you, to, nobody can help you to navigate that stuff. I had a really bad experience with a guy that I dated where, you know, I've never been judged on my offence. I have, obviously I've been judged, but I've never felt that judgment. I think I've sought it out at times, never really found it. And he really judged, he really judged me and, um, and it really hurt. It really hurt 15 years on because I felt like I'd works, you know, I work so hard to kind of do positive things in the world. Um, but also there was a part of me that really wanted him to judge me because I've been looking for that for 15 years, somebody to, you know, self-flagellate me in terms of punish me for what I did further, further than I've punished myself and further than the prison system did. I did speak about the school gates. I mean, I'm obviously a CEO of my own organisation where I'm quite open about my offending background and what I did, but not with my child because it's not age appropriate. It's too heavy for him, you know, when he was in primary school, especially to talk about that stuff and to see me through that lens but then I heard the other mums knew about it through a friend of a friend who'd, you know, outed me, which is fine. I get it. I'm no hard grudges or anything. Um, I get the gossips and I get that it's interesting because they haven't been around that before. But it was still really hard to, it was still really hard to know that that was happening in a, in an environment where I was trying to protect my child from the truth about me and that feeling of it could come out at any point. What I did actually was what I always do, which is fight <laughs> rather than flight. So I became a school governor 
uh, I, I got myself into a position of power so that I could kind of challenge it from the inside and feel, I suppose, legitimized in who I am today. Yeah, I mean, that's just what I do. I, I try not to take it personally. People are going to judge. Part of me likes that judgment because of what I did. It's the stigma that, that we feel within ourselves that I think is the most painful, um, especially in relationships. That's been my experience of that. Like Marie Claire, Liz has faced stigma in relationships with other parents. In one case, it sadly ruined a friendship she had with a fellow mum. I've had, I mean, I've had a couple of personal instances where I've shared my past and then people have stepped away. And one actually really, I felt really, really hurt. My son was a toddler when we were going to those play places, you know, like the ball, the bouncy things and all the climbing stuff. And then um, we were climbing up something and there was this little tiny lad and he, he just sort of fell and I grabbed his leg and stopped him and his mum come up. She went, oh my God, thank you. I didn't realise he'd gone up so far. And we started chatting. Her husband was working all the time and she, she moved to where we were living at the time and she didn't know anyone. So we started meeting up every week with the kids and we'd, we'd you know, go different places, have picnics in the park and everything. The kids got on great. We got on great. And then she said that she'd heard a rumour that I used to be a drug addict. And I was like, well, yeah, but, you know, it was years ago. And so she asked me all about it. And I told her that I'd always worked. I, you know, I had got convictions, but for, only for possession. I'd not become part of that criminal lifestyle. I always worked to support my habit. And um, and then, you know, carried on doing what we were doing six months or so. And then just before Christmas, when she says to me, I'm sorry, I can't be your friend anymore. And I was like, why? She went, no, I, I do love you and I love Daniel, but I can't change the way I react when I'm around you. It's like my heart wants to do one thing, but my brain's doing another. And I was like, why, what do you mean? And she said, I don't know if you've noticed, but since you told me, I don't leave Adam alone with you. Um, if I go to the toilet when we're together, I take my handbag or my phone. Or when when you when you come round the house, I, you know you you have to use the downstairs toilet or whatever. And we don't go out of the kitchen. And I hadn't noticed those things. You know, looking back, it genuinely hurt, really upset me. But actually, I was looking back, proud that she could recognise that. And she said she hated herself for it, but she couldn't change the way that she re- reacted. It's just such a shame, isn't it? It's just. To be honest, I think it was, I was upset about Daniel and her little boy. Yeah, not, it's very no. sad. It's very sad. I hear the, you know, what Liz talked about, the relationship that she had with um, a parent and how they'd sadly turned their back on her. Now, I haven't had that experience, but I think for me, I've got a fear of, there's a fear because not a lot of parents at the school know about my past, but they're, I think they might be interested in the work that I do when I tell them and they mm-hmm. might look it up and then see it. Mm-hmm. And I've still got this fear today. I think 20 years later, my two little ones are in primary school that, oh my goodness, if the parents found out, then they might prevent their child from coming to my house. Yeah. And But it hasn't been my experience, but it's always that fear of being stigmatised and sort of labelled or tarred with a brush. Um, And from what you've said, it's not actually a fear of you. It's a fear of the kids um, being hurt by that, by what happened. Exactly. And and that the consequences of my actions, even though they were 20 years ago, might still impact Mm. my children today. And obviously that will one day be a tricky conversation to have with. Like I have fear of having that conversation Mm. with my little ones. Um, 
like how do you sit them down and tell them this stuff so I will always for me anyway coming from my my background in like the consequences of my addiction and offending I will always have to explain myself at different points in life no matter what no matter how far I've come whatever job I'm doing however far away from it it will always impact Mm -hmm. my future in some way it will always impact my future and i feel really sad about mm. that it may, it still makes me feel sad and and i have to sort of like i said you know work extra hard to make sure that it doesn't impact my future or my children's future <laughs> As she explained in our last episode, Liz Jones hasn't found that stigma has held her back in her career. She told us how supportive her university has been after her sharing her story. All the way through education, academia, it's it's been such a bonus. And it's even being an ambassador for the more than my past campaign, you know, I was a bit, is the university going to appreciate it? You know, it being out there in the public domain that one of their lecturers is an ex-heroin addict. Um, and I, I spoke to the, the assistant dean of school and he was like, no, this is what the university is about. It's a community university. It's widening participation. It's about showing all those people that don't think that they can do this, that they actually can. Recovering addict Raf Chavez, who's now a vicar, has also had understanding employers. That was handy because he never liked the idea of being secretive about his past. One of the bad things that happened with COVID to me was to be free from and i'm saying that and i know it's difficult because i do not everyone is there yet but for me from the beginning of my recovery i was proud to be in recovery uh, and i still am you know if you search my name on google you're gonna see you know my church congregation knows that that vicar was a drug addict for 14 years and that he lost his, his virginity for prostitute uh, and that, you know, uh, I was a criminal. And I think if anything, that just shows the power of God and the power of recovery, right? Because I think it's really important that we, you know, not talking about something doesn't mean that something not to exist. I think anonymity is something that's personal. Uh, some people choose uh, to keep their anonymity and that's great. Uh, I'm the kind of guy that I never chose to. Uh, I remember when I was working for Nandis, right? My first job, I was 45 days clean. I went to Nandas and the guy said, oh, we've, we've got a job for you. It's full time. Uh, I said, great. Uh, he said, these are the times. I said, listen, I said, uh, I said, I'm a recovering addict. Uh, I said, I'm just 45 days clean. The, the Nandas was the Nandas in Soho in Fifth Street. And there was an NA meeting right next to it. And I remember I came to the guy and I said, listen, I said, I, said, uh, I need to make meetings. Otherwise, I'm going to rob money from Nandas at some point if I use drugs. <laughs> and he laughed and I said, uh, I said, uh, I, I, I want this job, but I need to be able to make a meeting a day at some point. I said, can you work around that? Uh, I made my recovery a priority, do you know what I mean? And uh, that guy could have judged me. People have opinions. People have uh, judgments. People have, uh, I just thank God I'm no longer a slave to that. Like uh, people's opinions of me don't pay my bills. I don't want to change something that will never completely change. I don't want to be like a dog that is chasing its tail never to get it. Because reality is uh, I can't stop other people from being judgmental. I can't stop some people from being racist. Uh, I can't even stop my own defects, let alone other people's, right? So I had to have faith that what was to be was to be and that the people that was to accept me and love me, they were going to accept me and love me. And today it is 
once old, dirty, filth drug addict uh, is now getting ordained as a priest at some post cathedral. You know, a couple of months ago, I was having dinner with Boris Johnson. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, could my, uh, you know, could that stigma have robbed me from things? I could, but the same life story brought me to a place that I never thought I would be. So I think it's like a, a give and take, isn't it? It's like it can go one way or another. As proud as he is of his recovery, Raf admitted he has to be careful with his story in certain situations. But I had to learn as well the difference between being honest and stupid. My sponsor helped me to find the fine line between them. Not everyone understands uh, what we have to say and where we've been. Uh, so sometimes my trauma can cause trauma in other people. I remember being in a church one day and I was preaching and I spoke about certain things and this guy came to me and he said, listen, it's lovely that you can talk about it and that you are free from it, but you can traumatize people with your story. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and it's not just about traumatizing them, it's about being judged by those people as well, being misinterpreted and so on. Uh, I, I guess maybe my faith in that aspect helps me or maybe being crazy the way I am helps me because I, I just don't care. I love that. I love, if I could just bottle a little bit of you, Raph, and keep, you, and keep that with me. We've spoken, Jules, about how that stigma can follow you for decades, you know, and what's the best way, if you were to give advice, about how to deal with that stigma in professional settings, you know, within employment processes and with uh, applying for work, etc. I think the only way is honesty. Mm. Honesty when needed. So if you are required to tell an, an employer by law, mm-hmm. not just because they're asking a nosy question, but by law, then honesty is the best way because I've known people that have gained employment and not been honest and then it's came out along the way and then they've lost employment yeah. because of that and then it's seen as deceitful and why have you been deceitful? As difficult as it is, is to get support when you are disclosing. So we at the Forward Trust help people that have come out of prison with disclosure and actually knowing the law, what do you what what do you have to disclose? Now some of my well actually all of my offences now are spent, which means if there's a box that says have you got any um unspent convictions or been convicted of anything, I don't have to tick that box, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. However, if I'm going into a job that is working with vulnerable people or prisons, um, then I will always have to declare. But it's knowing when when to declare and when not to declare. Mm-hmm. It's 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 educating people around that. And I think one thing that we could do as a society is I know there was a great campaign a couple of years ago, more than a couple of years ago now, called Ban the Box. Mm -hmm. And it was encouraging employers to ban the box that people had to tick. Um, Because if you tick a box to say that you've got an offence, then an employer is going to see that before they've even met you as a person. Jules, there are a lot of companies that are... They look positively on ex-offenders as well, aren't there? There are there are not a lot of companies, but there are companies. So presumably to research that, I'm sure that's always done. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think that it's an, e- it's an easy industry if you tick a box and you belong to that organisation mm. in terms of addiction and recovery and offending. Then, like for me, I've, I've relatively found it easy in some aspects to be in my... Um, employment and be loud and proud mm-hmm. and use my... Because there's a converted, you're exactly, preaching a converted to a exactly. degree. But 
we sort of box people off mm-hmm. because of that and actually people might have other talents and might want to go into other sectors like banking or accounting or teaching. computing or teaching, mm-hmm. exact teaching. And can't because of those offences or because of that addiction. So almost professionally it's pushed you down a certain line, you know, and it's not let, let you go left or right. Yeah. Interesting. Jane Shea is a woman in recovery who spent time in prison. She's worked hard to tackle stigma, particularly around women's prisons. For her, a big part of that is spreading the message that no one is just one thing. We did this magazine, Julia and I, called, it was called the I Am magazine, and it was um, it was for women that were in prison, and it was all about, it was for women with hep C, but it was a beautiful magazine, and, um, and, and we had this face on the front of it, and it said I Am, and it said, and we kind of, we wrote and we wrote down all the things that we are and, and in writing that what, what we realised was that we are different things on any given day and nothing and I think that's that there's a sense of freedom in knowing that and where that came from I don't know if you remember this guy who this guy came out of jail and he'd been in jail for murdering someone and then there was that thing that happened on London Bridge and he saved a few people's lives. Do you remember it? And then there was this, he, he was kind of deemed a hero, but then there was this other story where he'd murdered someone and this woman's child that he'd murdered was saying, but he's a murderer. And it's this whole thing of that we can be this, but we can also be that, you know. I've been hurt, but I've hurt people. And I am a woman and I am, I'm so many things. I'm a grandmother, I'm, I'm a mother. I've had hepatitis C, I've cleared it. And and on any given day, we can be different things. So it was kind of quite freeing to do that. Liz Jones agrees. You might have a past, but actually the, the stereotypical idea of a drug addict that will rob his granny and, well, isn't the majority of us. Exactly. It's, you know... We're so much more, and we are so much more. Even as well as being a drug addict, I was still a sister. I was a daughter. I was a friend. I was still a sci-fi fan. I was still a Formula One fan. There were so many other things that I that I was, and still, and and am now. With a bit of trepidation, Speedo Mick has chosen to share his past since he became a public figure. For him, the reaction has been a pleasant surprise. You know, but, but what, what happened and what I've slowly done on, on my social medias and stuff like that is I've slowly outed myself, you know, because of the stigma, you know, and, and, and the worry and the shame and the guilt. And, and I've just slowly, oh, I'm an addict, you know what I mean, and stuff. And, um, and uh, but, but, but. What's happened is is the opposite of what I thought was going to happen. I thought I was going to get shamed. I thought I was going to get, you know, guilted off. You know what I mean? And 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 um, judged, left, right, and centre. But what's the reality of it is through the the and this is happening now a lot. You know, it never used to happen years ago, but but communities. Uh, uh, are on board now with with, with addiction and they're, they're more aware about it, you know, and, and so it's them who redeem you. You can redeem yourself by doing actions and stuff like that, you know, positive actions and helping others and stuff, but it, if they're not going to accept you, then you're not going to get redeemed. So it's the public mm. that have redeemed me and they've just gone, crack on, mm. crack on, keep on doing what you're doing. We're really proud of you. <laughs> How do you think we're doing with 
tackling the stigma towards ex-offenders and people in recovery? Personally, I think we're making progress, but we're not nowhere near where we need to be. I think a big thing recently, which rightly so, is mental health. Like 10 years ago, people wouldn't talk about their mental health. It was shameful. You know, it was everything was kept secret, swept under the carpet. And so many, you know, preventable suicides happen as a result of that. Now it's on billboards. It's it's people are talking about it. It's fantastic. There's loads of support out there addiction is still in the shadows Mm -hmm. and it's really difficult to bring it out of the shadows and I think one of the things that we're trying to do through our addiction awareness campaign and of course we've got Princess of Wales who's who's our patron is heading that up she spoke beautifully at the last addiction awareness week about addiction uh, that basically no one is immune Mm -hmm. it can happen to anyone Mm -hmm. and I think that the more people realise that and understand that, it it sort of takes away that stigma of it being sort of shameful and it, it just brings it out into the open and will encourage people to talk about it more. Like anything can happen. Like the the person that you might walk past on the street that's been street homeless, an alcoholic who who looks like society has basically turned their back on him has a story mm-hmm. so it's like this can happen to anyone at any time it's what we do as a society to make sure that people don't fall into the spirals of addiction and that there are people out there to help them you know and not to, we don't turn our back on people just because they've fallen yeah i agree <laughs> If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe, and look out for future episodes.